forget that these things are behind me so that I don't trip. You know, uh, let's open up to um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. We've been going through uh, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. And we've been uh, looking at how it's really an unlikely story, but yet it's true. And so this week we're going to be moving into chapter 2. You know, Google has some of the most advanced technologies in the world. Uh, What started as a simple search engine has evolved into a conglomerate which involves uh, an office suite of products, um, multimedia functions. You'll also find Google Academic Research, email, cloud storage, smart home products, business services, web services, web browsers, security products and services, mobile devices and operating systems. And that's just scratching the surface of it. I found an article this week that was titled 140 plus Google services and tools you should know about and bookmark. That's only 140, and then they say plus, which there's a ton more. Who knows how many services there are for Google out there. But with so many entities that use the top tech of the day, you would think that the information that they gather in order to do what they, that they do, that they would use the top tech engineers of Silicon Valley. But that wouldn't be necessarily true. Uh, Take Google Street View, for example. Street View View is a a tool that allows users an eye-level image of streets in uh, and and throughout the world. And so you can see 360-degree pictures of what Union Street looks like, or maybe even your your house street, which is a little creepy, but it's... um, still technology that they have. And it is true that there are Google cars that are driving around constantly taking 360-degree pictures as it travels up and down the streets of not only America but throughout the the world. But to get to the most remote parts of the world, uh, the places that you can't get into with cars, Google employs a much more ingenuous, uh, uh, just genius strategy on how to get to these places and gathering information. They use sheep. Yes, Google uses sheep. The Faroe Islands, which are, it's this autonomous island country. Uh, It's within the kingdom of Denmark. It's in the northern Atlantic Ocean. They noted uh, over a year ago that their beloved island had not yet been indexed by Google Maps and their tracking, so they submitted this this request, and it was led by this gal named Dorita Dahl Andresen, and they proposed Google, uh, instead of street view, they proposed a sheep view. It was a 360-degree cameras that would be strapped to the back of roaming sheep that would provide the world with uh, images spanning in in the remote beauty of this island. And upon receiving the proposal, Google reportedly responded that it was sheer brilliance and supplied the island with the necessary equipment. The project was recently completed and the the Google Maps program manager reflected on it by saying this, it's our mission to make the farthest corners of the world accessible through street view in the palm of your hand. 
but there's a lot of world out there, so sometimes we need a little bit of help to hoof the distance. Now, thanks to Dorita and her trusty sheep, you can explore the Faroe Islands in Google Maps. It goes to show, if there's a wool, there's a way. (laughs) And when it comes to uh, his joke, not mine, folks, when it comes to a tech giant like Google, you'd expect these MIT engineers you would expect big names to be able to, uh, uh, to put in these algorithms to get specific results. You would expect these kind of geniuses to come up with map programs to tell exactly where you are and what turn you need uh, to make. You'd expect these brainy people to come up with these tech solutions to all kinds of problems that we have. But you wouldn't expect sheep to further the mission of Google. Yet, using the unexpected and the very unlikely is the very thing that uh, is leading to Google's uh, success. You know, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the account of Jesus' birth from Matthew's gospel. uh, And it seems like with every single vignette that we've touched on so far, God keeps showing us how he uses, uh, well, sheep. Not literally, but the unexpected the unlikely to make his purposes in Jesus Christ uh, come to fruition. And we saw how unorthodox it was to see the kind of people that was in Jesus' lineage in the first part of chapter 1. And last week we saw how God did the miraculous by creating a virginal conception uh, in Mary and a future husband who not only believed her story, but put his life on the line for it. But of all the sheep that God has used to bring about the Christmas story, perhaps the most bizarre and the most misunderstood is uh, the uh, story in in Matthew's account that involves the Magi. But as we look at this unlikely and unexpected visit from this mysterious group, we end up uh, finding what it truly uh, means to not only understand Christmas, but how to know Jesus and respond to him in the way that he asks us to and what it means for our lives. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 2, I invite you to read along with me, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd uh, my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he uh, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. 
God, what we don't know, would you uh, enlighten? What we are not, would you make? And Lord, would you help Jesus to now be honored in this time? It's in his great name that we ask this. Amen. Well, if we want to get to the heart of Christmas and the purpose for our lives, we need to see that Matthew is first telling us that we need to refuse to see Jesus as a threat. Refuse to see Jesus as a threat. Look with me again in verses 1 through 3. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So here these, these wise men are. In the Greek, they're, they're considered magi. Um, we'll get to them here uh, in the next point. They show up at King Herod's court after Jesus had been born. And in my opinion, I think Herod is one of the most fascinating characters throughout the entire uh, Bible. He came to power about 30 years before this incident here. Um, and uh, he came uh, with an interesting turn of events. At the end of the Old Testament, the Babylonians had been defeated by the Persians. Yet in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Persians were overtaken by the Greeks. And then in turn, the Greeks were overtaken by the Romans. And the Romans had such a vast and a large empire that it was absolutely impossible for them to govern over all the areas that they had control over. So they employed sort of these viceroys, people that would have authority over these regions, uh, but would not necessarily... Have, uh, have sovereign power over them. And after a long and violent fight, Herod ended up taking the position of king over Judea. Now, obviously, he, he wasn't sovereign. He was under the thumb of Rome. Uh, but nonetheless, he held the power in that region. He was an absolute ruthless leader. He was paranoid with every turn of people trying to stage a coup against him. And because of this, he would execute anyone that he saw even as a potential for being uh, someone that would commit treason against him. And when I say anyone, I mean that. Herod had, has been down recorded in history as being one who executed a couple wives and a couple of his children because he was scared that they were trying to usurp his authority. Aware of his ruthlessness, Caesar Augustus was actually quoted as saying, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. You get treated better as the food in his house than his family. So you can imagine now when these foreigners from far off come into Herod's court and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Because the answer to Herod is obvious. You're looking at him. I am the king of the Jews. He's right here. Now imagine if someone walked into the Oval Office and went up to the president and said, I am looking for the president of the United States. He would be a little put off by that. Obviously, there's an insinuation there. But the Magi continued. They go on to say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Well, now we have a problem. It is obvious that they have not come to worship the king who is in power. 
And not only that, here are these people who are not even part of the Jewish community that have come to use the appointed king, the official king, to look for this king who has supposedly uh, been born, the true king of the Jews. And Herod is, uh, was obviously not only offended by this, but he's also more than likely a bit frightened as well. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And the reason for his trepidation on this visit is that he knows that he is not the true heir to the king, to the throne of Israel. In fact, he's not even a full-blooded Jew. He is an Idumean, which means he would have been mostly an Edomite. Which, if you look in the Old Testament... Edomites were typically enemies of Israel. And so when the Magi inquire where the king of the Jews is, Herod uh, is offended in one sense, but yet he's also very afraid in the other. Troubled literally means here to agitate, to stir up, to terrify or to create anxiety. Herod sees another threat that he is going to have to uh, take care of. So he does classically what any person in power who is threatened does. When he's scared or or threatened uh, of losing power, he manipulates the, uh, the innocent. He gathers as much information that he can to eliminate the threat. All the while while carrying on a religious facade. He calls all the higher level priests, which were the religious leaders. He calls all the scribes, which would have been the seminary professors and the legal experts of the day, uh, to see if there was something to this claim. And if so, where is this child supposed to be? And it's interesting to note what Herod is doing here, because in one sense, he is sort of professing his belief in God's word and the belief in God's prophecy, where is this child to be born? But on the same token, he's also trying to stop the sovereign control of God by figuring out how he can stop this. We think, how arrogant. But yet we do the same thing all the time. Once he figures that this king of the Jews was to be born in Bethlehem, notice that he manipulates the Magi. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. Herod is a classic case of narcissism mixed with power. Herod believed that Jesus was a threat to him. And we might not put ourselves in Herod's position, but we are nonetheless more like Herod than we actually think. Whenever we place our worship on something other than Jesus... Jesus will always be a threat to us, though we will not recognize it in that sort of a way. 
Jesus will always be a threat to us when we intellectually uh, give ascension to the gospel, his work on our behalf, but when he calls us to love our enemy, when he calls us to forgive those who have hurt us, when he calls us to stop looking at pornography, when he calls us to stop treating our spouses and our children with disrespect, when he calls us to stop premarital, extramarital, and perverted sex, when he calls us to stop gossiping and complaining, all of, and when he starts doing all these things that he asks us to do or to abstain from, immediately Jesus is a threat to us. And instead of saying that he is a threat, we'll just do what Herod did. We'll put on a religious face. We'll manipulate others or God's word to justify our behaviors and our beliefs. And we'll send the innocent to do our dirty work. And when that happens, you will not like the Jesus of the Bible. You will dismiss its word. Instead, you will demand ultimate worship of the Jesus rather that you see in the mirror every day. You will see your Jesus will look like you. He will sound like you. He will believe what you believe. He will like what you like. He will live the way you live. And he'll never have a problem with anything that you say, think, or do. When our focus and purpose is on ourselves, the baby in a manger will always be a threat to our lifestyle. So instead of seeing the threat as seven miles away from the stable, Herod should rather have seen that the true threat was himself. And many of us need to stop seeing the image in the mirror as our object of worship and rather start seeing the object in the mirror as the very threat that we face every single day. We are of the same nature as Herod and we need help. And the only remedy that was available for Herod is the only remedy that will save us from this, uh, from seeing Jesus as a threat. And that is getting off of the thrones of our hearts and to start seeing Jesus as the true king of our lives. So we need to stop seeing we need to refuse to see Jesus as a threat but secondly we also need to reorient our understanding of Jesus reorient your understanding of Jesus one of the most mysterious and perhaps often misunderstood uh, parts of the Christmas season is are these figures that we call wise men or magi or uh, more often we call them the three kings In fact, one of the most recognized Christmas carols, we three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar. But when we look at the Bible and we look in history, I think that we ought to have a healthy dose of skepticism in the ways that we have viewed these magi in the culture. More than likely, there are more than three of them. There are quite possibly 10 to 12 that were doing them. More than likely, they weren't kings. And they probably didn't show up until Jesus was a toddler. And unless we think they are so mysterious, we need to understand that these magi have shown up in the Bible before. 
In Daniel chapter 2, you might recall that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had appointed these dream interpreters, these stargazers, these kind of priests of his day, in order to interpret his dreams. And they're not able to do it. And so Daniel comes in, and he interprets the dream, and King Nebuchadnezzar uh, hires Daniel to be this great servant in his kingdom, and he wants to wipe out all these other wise men. Well, the word there is magi. And because Daniel had compassion on these wise men, they went on to survive. Obviously until at least the time of Christ. So when these wise men show up, they're an old Babylonian order of, music, of magicians, priests, and stargazers. And this is incredibly important because the life that they had lived would have been antithetical, completely repulsive to anyone who would have been a pious Jew. And on top of that, they also come from a nation that has a history of taking over Jerusalem, expelling God's people from Jerusalem, and, and completely leveling the city. These are the kind of people that a good Jew, especially a messianic figure, would want nothing, absolutely nothing to do with. And yet here they came, following this mysterious star that has created all sorts of speculation. Some say it's a comet. Some say it's this astrological phenomenon that has been uh, backed up in Chinese writings and writings all over the world. But whatever the case is, it's clear that God was using this miraculous thing to bring uh, the foreign nations to Jesus God is showing that he is not just a regional God. He is not just the God of the Israelites, but rather he is an international God. He is for all nations. He wants all peoples from every tongue, tribe, and nation to come and worship him. The star is a fulfillment of Numbers 24-17, way back in the time of Moses, when it was prophesied that a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of the rule, uh, shall rise out of Israel. He is leading the Magi by this miraculous light to bring them all to the true light, the light that brings life to all people, Jesus Christ. And the oddest thing about this is that they're foreigners. They are not part of Israel. And we must see how easy it is for us who have gotten into the groove of Christianity that God doesn't just want us to know him, but he wants the nations to know him. He wants everyone in the earth to know who he is and what he has done. It is easy to get in the mindset that God's purposes are only for us who are in the church. And so we set up church structures that cater only to those of us who are part of what's going on here at the church. But folks, if we want to truly understand and truly get what God is doing in the stable with the Magi, we must get out of these walls and start loving the world. We must drop our inward focus and look to those that God has called, uh, has called us to out there. The Magi may have been led by a star, but we are being led by the Holy Spirit in light of Jesus' call to go in to all the world and make disciples. If we don't reorient our understanding of Jesus and his call for us, we are going to find out that we are instead threatened by Jesus. 
This church doesn't exist for us. Emmanuel Baptist Church exists for the community and for the world to know Jesus. So folks, let's start today. Let's forget about ourselves. And let's bust down these walls and go to a community that desperately needs to know this baby Jesus. And not just the baby, but the one who grew to live perfectly for us, to die on our behalf and to be raised. Let's reorient our understanding of Jesus. Be the light of Jesus. And call the magis of our community to worship Jesus. And third and finally, we need to offer our most costly treasures to Jesus. Offer your most costly treasure to Jesus. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so these magis, these foreign, really these foreign pagans is really what they essentially are. They come to Bethlehem to see this king that they've been searching for. And they probably had absolutely no idea of the incarnation of Jesus, which means that this is God dwelling in human form. They knew nothing about uh, this theology that we have um, uh, since, uh, since we have God's word. They were just foreign dignitaries that are bringing tribute to a prophesied king. And the text says that it brought them exceedingly great joy. And in paying homage to the king here, notice that they bring four gifts. The most famous of them being the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This would have been extraordinary gifts that would have been very, very expensive. In fact, Mary and Joseph, uh, we, we believe that they were probably very, very poor. And so the gifts that the Magi bring here would have been worth more than they have ever seen. Now, it's common in much Bible interpretation to uh, look at these gifts and their fuller meaning. Look at the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh that would represent what Christ's life is going to end up. They would say the gold represents the royalty, that the frankincense uh, represents God here on earth, and that the myrrh, uh, which was typically used for embalming fluid, uh, represented his death. Uh, It wasn't just used for embalming, by the way. That would be a really weird Christmas present uh, if someone gave you embalming fluid. Uh, It was also uh, a, a perfume, and it was a very costly perfume as well. Um, and I think that, uh, that we can look at those, uh, those gifts as being symbolic, but we have to be careful not to see those as being the final interpretation here. That the Magi would not have thought about these gifts as symbolic, nor would Mary and Joseph. It wouldn't have been on their minds. Uh, so we must first wonder, is there a plainer meaning to what Matthew is trying to tell us here? And I think that we can find that meaning if we were to read on. Look in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, obviously there's more to the story that we haven't gotten to yet. And next week we're going to see how Herod creates a plot to kill uh, many um, infant boys in Bethlehem. 
uh, in order to wipe out Jesus. And Joseph is warned against this in a dream. And they flee to Egypt. We'll look at that more deeply next week. But for today, we have to see that God was using the Magi here to give them costly gifts, a poor family that would have given them the means to travel to Egypt. Whereas they probably wouldn't have survived the trip from Bethlehem to Egypt, being as poor as they were, yet these gifts could be sold in order for them to have the kind of money that they need to get there. They were giving Jesus costly gifts in order to see God's plan through, even if they didn't realize it. And these three gifts that the Magi give uh, uh, to Jesus, and you may have heard that I said that they gave four gifts, and you might have said, well, what are you talking about that they gave four gifts? Well, look at me with me again at verse 11. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And it's here that perhaps they gave their, their most expensive gift. It's not stuff. It's themselves. They give Jesus their heart. They bow down and they worship him. I hear a group of men who by the world's standards have it all. Wisdom, knowledge, riches, resources, and here they are worshiping a baby. And what they found then is that they gained joy in worshiping Jesus. What a contrast from Herod. Now you and I may not be wealthy dignitaries, but we nonetheless are called to give Jesus our most expensive and costly treasure. Our gold and our frankincense and our myrrh, well, that's our time, talent, and resources. And when we realize that the man in the mirror is the greatest threat that we have, and when we reorient our understanding of Jesus and his mission, we learn that the most costly gift the gift of our very lives, everything about our lives. That's not a burdensome gift to give to Jesus. That's a joy to give to Jesus. It is costly, but it is worth it. There's nothing more important than giving your very life to Jesus. But the thing is, is that we often want to keep the best gift for ourselves. How many of you have ever given your parents or your spouse a gift simply because you want it? I've never done that, by the way, before. <laughs> and here, Jesus wants all of us. He doesn't want an eighth. He doesn't want a quarter. He doesn't want a half. He doesn't want three quarters. He wants 100% of us. He wants our lives. And so the question that we need to ask then is based on this passage, what areas of your life are there that you need to give over to Jesus? Maybe it's focusing too much on one thing or maybe it is not paying enough to attention to Jesus not being in his word. Maybe you're here today and you've never actually put your faith in Jesus. You've never put all your eggs in that basket. 
Jesus Christ came, died, gave you not just 100%. He gave you 5,000% of who he was. And he asks us to trust him with our very lives. And so, friends, today, are you willing to give Jesus your entire life? He promises you that he's not going to leave you, that he's not going to forsake you, that all of your needs are going to be met. What do you have to lose? Follow Jesus today. You know, sheep are the most unlikely of tech gurus to help Google move along in their progress. But still, they were usable by Google in a major way. The Magi were very unlikely people to honor the king of kings. Yet, when, they, when we see ourselves, that we are not unlike the sheep and we are not unlike the Magi. We are unlikely candidates to be used by God. But yet, he desires to use us. But when we, but first we must refuse to see Jesus as a threat. We must reorient our understanding of him. And we have to be willing to give our most costly treasure to him, our very lives. Will you do that today? Give Christ everything that you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It, it's challenging. It is, um, it is true and it is good. But yet, it is challenging. And so, Father, I pray that wherever we're at, that we may not see Jesus as a threat, but yet, he remains a threat in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that we would dismiss that. I pray that we would see Jesus rather as the savior of our true threat, ourselves. Lord, that we would see Jesus rightly, that he comes to call people like, like us, and that he's indeed calling people here in the community, in the state, the country, and throughout the world. Lord, would you help us to be a part of what you're doing? And Father, I pray today that those who are in this room today that they would give their most costly treasure to Jesus. That they would see the things of this world as fading away that have no value in the end. That really in the end, all that matters is what you have done in your glory. And so Father, I pray that if someone's here today and they've never given their life over to you, Lord, that they would cry out to you. That they would pray, God, would you save me from my sins? I trust that Jesus has been efficient for them. Help me to give my life to you, to throw off my selfishness, to throw off any part of me that might be on the throne of my life. And Christ, would you take control of the throne of my heart? And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Would you stand with us as we...